Turn with me, if you will, please, in your Bible to the end of chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel. Luke 22, verse 63. Jesus on trial. It's almost like a history lesson this morning, the way things went down. I don't know if you do a lot of parallel research when you go through the Gospels, but uh, you'll notice, if you do, that some of the stories are in all the Gospels, other the other stories are truncated and a little bit shorter in one gospel than in another. But if you, as I've said before, going through this gospel, when you put them together, you get a composite of uh, a fuller picture of the things that transpired. In this case, it's the trial of Christ. And right away, when you begin to read uh, through uh, the gospels and here in Luke, uh, you'll see that there's really two distinct trials that Jesus went through. One uh, being the Hebrew trial, uh, his appearance before Annas, the elder of the high priest. There were two high priests at this time. Um, and then uh, before the Sanhedrin, which we'll explain a little bit later on here. And, uh, and then also the Roman trial, which was before Pilate, and then sort of an arraignment there before Herod, who was in town, in Jerusalem at the time of the, to celebrate the Passover. And, and then, of course, the reappearance, as we'll see again here this morning, before Pilate and before he is sentenced uh, to die. And so, let's stand as I just, just I'll just read the first uh, few verses here uh, into chapter 23, verse 5. As this is a long passage, I'll just uh, read the first verses. So stand with me as I read, beginning in verse 63 of Luke 22. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things, they blasphemy spoke against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it with our, ourselves with our own, out of his own mouth. And then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they begin to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Amen to the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
So after the arrest by the mob that came to get him there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, he's taken to the high priest Annas. And as we look through these, this passage here this morning, broken it up into, there's five different paragraphs. I didn't have to break it up. It's all broken up for us. Uh, we're going to look at Annas here. And essentially, uh, I deduce from some of these uh, a thought. Um, may not be perfectly accurate, but it's my uh, interpretation of some of what we're reading anyway. But before Annas, we see the God-haters. People who just absolutely hate God. Here, these men who absolutely hated Jesus Christ. And then... uh, Verses 66 through 71, uh, as he appears before the Sanhedrin, these are the truth haters, people that just hate the truth. They don't want to receive the truth. They want nothing to do with the truth. They want to make up their own truth. And then uh, moving on, uh, verses 1 through 5, where we finished our reading, uh, we have Jesus before Pilate, and we have those that are just indifferent towards Jesus Christ. They don't really care. It's not that important to them. And then we'll go on to see, uh, as we make our way through the passage here, verses 6 through 12, uh, Jesus before Herod. And here we have uh, those that live hedonistic lives, living for pleasure, living for simply for themselves, totally self-indulgent, self-centered, and could care less about anybody else but themselves. Uh, So Herod fits that bill. And then lastly... Verses 13 through 25, we'll see Jesus before Pilate again. He can't be indifferent in this situation because now he's being forced into making a decision, as we will see. So we have those that are indecisive. They can't make up their mind about Jesus. They don't want to reject him, but they don't necessarily want to receive him. So we've got a picture of different people and different reactions to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, as we've read through... uh, 63 and through 65, we have the God-haters. Now remember, some of you, it might be vague, but remember that at the beginning of the feast, uh, the establishment, and my, what I mean by the establishment would be the Sanhedrin, which is a combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, they refer to as the elders uh, of the people responsible for the spiritual direction and, uh, of the nation. They were gathering together. What are we going to do? We can't let this guy continue. And so let me pick that up. You can pull that up too, I think, there in John 11, uh, verses 47 through 52. It says, The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Gosh, I wish that would have happened. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not only for the, na- not o- for the nation only, but also he would gather together 
in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So you can see during this feast week, uh, they were putting this, trying to put a plan together to, to murder Jesus, to kill him. And, uh, and now that they've had this prophetic utterance given by Caiaphas, they now feel that it is God's will for uh, Jesus to die. Now, we know that it was God's will for him to die, but, but not the way they thought that Jesus should die, right? And so the betrayal by Judas of Christ was a rather fortuitous situation for them that gave them an inroad uh, as it were, to capture Jesus. And so once they would have Jesus in custody, uh, they could execute their plan quickly, uh, and they wanted to do as quick as possible to maintain the peace and not let the people uh, get involved. You know, there were over 2 million people that had gathered for the Passover at this time in Jerusalem. Could you imagine if they did this in broad daylight? And the people who loved Jesus would have swarmed them, and it would have just been a massacre and all. So they had to do it. Uh, in the in the dark, the hour of darkness, right? And uh, but it, as this plan seemed to roll out, it was a little bit uh, maybe disorganized, and maybe they were a little bit confused because I think uh, by Jesus sending Judas on his way, whatever you do, do quickly. You know that little phrase. I think it sort of caught them a little off guard. They knew that Judas was going to betray him; they'd already paid him, and so they weren't sure of the timing. So who's in control here? God's in control. Jesus was in control of the situation. Whatever you do, Judas, do quickly. So he left, and um, I think it sort of caught the establishment off guard. So they're sort of scrambling around. So somewhere around 2 in the morning, some of the commentators have tried to figure out the timing of all this. But by 9 o'clock the following morning, Jesus will be nailed to the cross he will be crucified. And so this plan uh, is to be put in uh, uh, order as quickly as possible by them. And so the best way for them to do that was to take Jesus initially to Annas' house. Now he is the father-in-law. He's the old curmudgeon of the group, grouch, old old man. You can just kind of tell by the way uh, some of the speeches. If you read through the different accounts, he just... I have this grouchy old man <laughs> picture in my mind. Uh, but anyway, he's taken to Annas' house there. And uh, what, is this, what this does for them is it gives them, buys them a little bit of time because they needed to organize and bring together the Sanhedrin, which was a uh, compilation of Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, they needed to get these charges kind of brought together. How are we going to charge Jesus? What are we going to bring before actually Rome in order to murder Jesus? And so this going to Anasos would give them time to put a charge together and also gather the Sanhedrin together in a few hours. And so just just the way this thing is unfolding is kind of clumsy in, in, in most people's view. Uh, and you can see that it's just the, it's the whole thing's rigged. You know, it's immoral, it's unethical, and that's just being, and that's being kind, uh, obviously. You know, Jesus uh, did uh, point out in John 18, 23, uh, that he sort of insisted on the uh, rights that were given to those who were being charged with things, uh, 
in the law. Uh, they were not really allowed to abuse people. Um, they were not allowed to uh, taser the people and those kinds of things, right? Torture them. And um, so what they were doing with these questions given by Annas was to get Jesus to testify against himself. And I love it because Jesus sort of turned the tables on them and wanting to get them, as it were, uh, to confess what he was doing. He answers, and this is um, in John eighteen nineteen to give us a, a picture here. So I'm going to do this, so I'll go back and kind of fill in the void that's not here in Luke's gospel. But in referring to this, John eighteen nineteen through 24, we read, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've done, said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck him with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil... Bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so, as I said, the purpose of this preliminary trial, essentially what it was, is to uh, discover a charge uh, that they could get on Jesus and also get the Sanhedrin assembled. And so, they send... Jesus to Caiaphas, he was the official high priest. Now, Caiaphas is an interesting guy. This guy was, he had it going on. He's been there for about 18 years. He knows everybody that needs to be known. He's got a, 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 a relationship with uh, Rome, and uh, they're, they're not going to allow this, you know, would-be prophet preacher to come in and mess up their program. And so this is um, what was happening here. This is, uh, this is a pure power move to destroy him. We see here these God-haters, those people who simply hate Jesus. Look what they did to him here. They mocked him and they beat him. You know, this is what God-haters do. They mock God. I listened to a number of debaters, atheists. I love um, John Lennox. I don't know if you've... He's a uh, professor at Oxford. Beautiful Christian brother. I don't know too many people that are smarter than he is and more articulate than he is when it comes to defending the faith. And when he uh, deals with the, the Dawkins of the day and some of these other um, atheists, it's funny to see him just take them down just with, out of pure logic. But there are, those, there are those that mock God. And they mock those who stand up for Jesus. And then there are those who beat Christians, abuse people who stand up for Christ. I mean, we, we have a, we've had a really pretty good here in our country, have we not? Think about what our brothers and sisters go through in the Muslim regions of the world where they're beaten killed, persecuted mercilessly 
as it were, considered infidel because we will not bow to Allah. We will not bow to their false God. We will not bow to their false teachings or at all. And so we're, they'll become physical because they hate God and they hate anyone who's associated with God. Notice how they also blindfolded him. I mean, this is just, this is just pure, unadulterated hatred. You know, when you're in a fist fight with someone, of course, I know none of you have ever had one of those guys, mostly, right? It's one thing to be in a fist fight and see it coming. At least you can try to dodge it, right? Or absorb it some way if you're into boxing. But when you're blindfolded, you can't see anything coming. It just, I mean, the impact would have just been very difficult. This is the mistreatment. And this is all predicted in the Old Testament. Let's look at Isaiah 50, for example. I gave my back, this is Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and spitting. Isaiah 52, 14, as many as were astonished, so his visage was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. Of course, we're all f- somewhat familiar with Isaiah 53, which you know I won't read all of it, but you can turn there, if you will, to Isaiah 53. It should be a passage that we re- visit once in a while to just remind ourselves of what we are and what it took for Jesus to get us into his kingdom, who's believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed. He's going to grow up before him as a tender plant and then as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we, as it were, hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our sorrow, our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone on to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you can continue to read that chapter on your own. It's just a sobering reminder of what he did and who we are. Psalm 38, another descriptive psalm uh, describing his afflictions. Those who seek my life, this is Psalm 38, 12 through 15. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and a plan deception all day long but I like a deaf man do not hear I'm like a mute who does not open his mouth thus I am like a man who does not hear and whose mouth is no response for in you O Lord I hope you will hear me O Lord we think about Jesus as we'll see here many of the accusations and as he's standing before Pilate he opens not his mouth he doesn't answer the accusations and Jesus himself predicted that this was happening on the way up and back in chapter 18 he said look we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written in the scriptures 
concerning me is going to be accomplished. I'm going to get turned over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me. They're going to insult me. They're going to spit upon me. They're going to scourge me. They will kill me. But I will rise again on the third day. And isn't it amazing? Everything that the Lord says comes to pass. There is no um, escaping the word of God. The word of God cannot fail. It will always come to pass. I, as I read through these scriptures and I think about what he went through, and I'm sure you do the same, I find it amazing. I find it actually incomprehens- uh, incomprehensible that uh, he was willing to do this, to incarnate and to become one of us in order to save us from our sin, to redeem us back to himself. This mistreatment, I mean, he created us, and look how the creation treated the creator. I just, it's, just, it's just over the top. And in fact, this paragraph is just the beginning. The sufferings of Christ are going to become more intense as these trials uh, proceed. They dishonored him as a prophet. They asked him to prophesy. They continued to blaspheme him. And then in, as we look at verses 66 through 71, the truth haters. These are the religious people. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> Some of the most religious people are the ones who hate the truth. Again, the Sanhedrin was this judicial council and assembly. that They were the ruling body in Israel. What they said went. They were like the Supreme Court. So whatever they decided, you know, that's the way it's going to be. And uh, they had to present a case that they knew would be enforced by Rome, by Pilate. Uh, But at this time, uh, the Jewish nation had the ability to carry out capital punishment taken away from them. They were not allowed to take life. Rome took that away from them. So that's why we have the Hebrew trial first and then a presentation of the criminals, uh, as it were, to Rome and then they would be the ultimate uh, one to carry out whatever punishment they deemed necessary. This is, uh, again, why uh, we read here uh, as soon as it was day. And so at daybreak, they had... Got everybody together, as we see the list there. Uh, the elders of the people, that's the Sanhedrin, the council of the elders. Uh, the scribes were uh, coming along as well, and some of the rest of the Levitical priests. Quite a mass of people uh, gathered there in that court. And then, of course, Annas and Caiaphas would have been there. I can't help but think this is how it will be in the end time. We, will, we see the apostate church working in conjunction with the tyrannical government of the day. You know, this is, when, when those two meet up, we see it in the book of Revelation, the woman, the apostate church is riding the beast, receives its power and authority from the beast. There's a lot going on there. This is a recipe for the persecution of the righteous persecution of the remnant of the church and it's coming 
You can just feel what's going on. The world has changed in the last four to five years. It's a different world. You know, uh, I think we have to ask God to prepare us individually for what's coming. We don't want our faith to fail. We want God to infuse us with faith, trust, and hope. Jesus set the example. We're not greater than our master, right? If he suffered, we, there's a good chance we're going to suffer. And may God give us the grace. It's not, it doesn't, I mean, look, we can't act like Peter, right? Oh, I can do this. No. No, we can't. We need grace. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is what kept Jesus on track. You think he just did this because, well, he's God. No. The Bible is very clear. He had the spirit without measure. He had faith without measure. Yes. It, but it was his faith and his commitment as a man being trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he prayed. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what kept him on track. This is what keep you on track. This is what will keep me on track if the persecution arises against the church here in the last days. You can expect to be lied about, misrepresented, mistreated. This is going to happen. Some of you have already had those kinds of things happen in your life. It's part of the sufferings of Christ that we're called to endure as believers. So this council seeks a false testimony in their, in their phony trial. They found, and this is Matthew's gospel. If you're taking notes, you can look this up. Matthew 26, uh, verses 59 and onward. Uh, they found false witnesses. Wow, that would have been hard to do, right? They, they came forward. They, two of the false witnesses fabricated and twisted the words of Christ, speaking against the temple, you know. Blasphemy. Tear it down and rebuild it in three days right. Yeah, you're a terrorist, man. Your speech is not politically correct, Jesus. You're a racist. Yeah, this is kind of stuff similar, right? And Jesus kept silent. You know, Jesus is not there to defend himself, is he? He's there to be obedient to what he was born into this world for. And then finally, in order to get him to speak, I put you under oath to the living God. I mean, the curmudgeon is coming out. He's mad and angry. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? See, this trial is not about what Jesus had done. It's about who Jesus is. And always was that. And he affirms both that he is the Son of God. It is as you say. And then he refers to himself being the Son of Man, which is actually a reference, as you know, I repeat this an awful lot because I just love it. Daniel seven thirteen. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen. To receive the kingdom. And when the high priest heard this, he just lost it. And he should have because he's a fool. He's claiming to be the son of man, deity. Because that was uh, the belief of that, of that passage and its interpretation. So this 
phony fabric, a fabricated session of ill justice, really. Tears his clothes. <laughs> Jesus, as we've read here, responds, look, you're not going to believe me. This is probably leading up to that, those statements saying that he's the son of man and all. You're not going to let me go, but you will see me coming in the clouds. <laughs> wow. And so it was easy for them to conclude in verse 71, we don't need any more testimony. And really, they didn't. Jesus fully declared who he was. And he was not ashamed. He didn't um, back down. And this is what I love. First Timothy 6.13, Paul saying that Jesus uh, made a good confession. That one says in front of Pilate, but this is a good confession and as I would, I would say, uh, before the Sanhedrin. So now they've got the, the Hebrew trial complete. He's done um, and said all the things that needed to be said. And they can present this, uh, as it were, uh, to Pilate. This is where we pick it up in the beginning of chapter 23. Now, once we come uh, to this particular section before, but these are the indifferent. Uh, people who simply don't want anything to do with Jesus. And his first appearance here before Pilate is like, you see to this yourself. This is what he tells us in one of the other Gospels. <laughs> okay, so he's done something. We just... Just go judge him according to your law. Really? I mean, he wants nothing to do with the Jews. They resent the Jews. They're just troublemakers. There just always seems to be trouble in Jerusalem, you know. And so he wants nothing to do with Jesus. Oh, but he's perverting our nation. He just tells us we don't have to pay taxes, you know. Verse 2. Claiming to be a king, a messiah. And so he's looking for an out. A lot of people who are indifferent are looking for now. I'll just change the subject, you know. I don't want to talk about Jesus. Really? Yeah, that's your truth. That's fine for you. It's hard to deal with people like that. It's really, it's sad. You notice Pilate only focuses on one of the charges that was brought against Jesus. I mean, the rest is hearsay. You know, circumstantial evidence, maybe, at best. But the thing about being a king, now that, that's important. Because Caesar's not going to take that well if there's another king arising out of Israel. So he's going to pay attention to that. But he's looking for an out, and he finds one when he says, that said to him in verse 5, that he's a Galilean. Oh, great. See, that's what it is with Indifferent people are just looking for an out, and they'll take it as soon as they can get it. Let's just send him over to Herod. And that's what he does. In verses 6 through 12, well, let me read this passage here, a few of the verses. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if 
the man were a Galilean. As soon as he knew that it belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he'd hoped to see some of the miracle done by him. And then when he questioned him with many words, he answered him nothing. And the chief priest and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt, mocked him, and arrayed him in gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for they had previously been at enmity with each other. So here we have, uh, we don't have the, a God-hater or, or a truth-hater or someone who's indifferent. We have actually a hedonistic individual. And this is probably why Herod and Pilate didn't get along. It was all, always, always about Herod himself. Whatever he saw he want, he wanted his brother's wife, so he took him... That didn't go over so well with John the Baptist and that ended up taking his head. You know, this is a very self-centered. And this is what hedonistic people are like. They want only to serve their own interests. They care nothing about the interests of others. Unless by chance it would benefit themselves, then they might be interested in it. It's really, it's really saddening about this is we have a lot of people with this problem that are in leadership. They're in our country leading our country today, which is kind of sad. You know, positions of authority to be filled with people who there are there to serve. They're to serve the needs of the many, not the wants of a few. And this is the problem that we're facing in our own country. And I just thank the Lord for those who are called to civic responsibility. I won't use the word politics. That just has dirty connotations, doesn't it? But it's, it's called civic responsibility. You know, I don't know uh, how much uh, civics is being taught by homeschoolers, which it should be, because it's been, for a couple generations almost, it's been totally left out of state-run schools education. That's why we are, generally speaking, as a populace, ignorant of civic responsibility. One only has to read the Constitution to realize, uh uh-oh, we've been derelict of duty as citizens. We've not gotten involved. We're not, um, we've not done what we ought to do. And as a result, tyrants have taken their places in leadership. And and this is what we have. It's, It's the hedonistic culture in which we live in. The pursuit of pleasure, self indulgence is. This is what seems to fill the lives with a lot of people in our nation today. So Herod, his reactions are all self-centered. He was happy to see Jesus. Like he's some form of entertainment, right? He says there that he was long to see him. He'd heard many things about him and he wanted to see a miracle. Show me something cool. He has no idea See, this is how some people, they think God is some cosmic errand boy to do their bidding, that whatever they pray and ask God for it, they should receive it because after all, they're special. And if God doesn't answer them, that means he doesn't exist. That's right, he doesn't exist for you to be there for you to do things that you're on your whims. That's right, he's not there for you. He exists. 
His great love allows you to give you life, give you the gift of life, and you're serving nobody else but yourself. How sad. And to those people, God is silent. There's no answer from God to them. And neither will there be until there's brokenness and contrition and a recognition of who they are before him. And that is that we are sinful people who need a savior. Then God is all ears and then God will speak. But they can question Jesus here and that's what they did. He did not respond and they just again further mistreated him, beat him, cursed him, mocked him. I find it interesting in verse 12 that led to a reconciliation. I think it, again, it's, Herod was happy that Pilate paid attention to him. I think Pilate was better off just ignoring him and he didn't really want to have that. I mean, do you, do you like to be around people that are self-indulgent, self-centered, and all they think about themselves? I don't. You probably don't either. I'm sure uh, there was a reason why they weren't friends. But now... Uh, Having fulfilled the desire of Herod, Herod dropped all his angst against him. He sent back to Pilate the second time. And here we see another attribute uh, expressed by Pilate in that he uh, was indecisive. How many people do you know that have heard about Jesus? Probably spent time reading the Bible they spent hours in church over periods of time, but again, they're indecisive. They just can't make up their mind on whether or not they should follow Jesus or make full. What if, what if it's, he's not there? What if he's not true? Oof. See, this is where Pilate, he's stuck. He's stuck in the middle of it all. And, and then as we read through uh, verses 13 through 25 or less, paragraph. We've got enough time here, so I'll, I'll do that. Verse 13. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will release, therefore, chastise him and release him. For it is necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. Then they all cried at once, saying, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And then he said to them a third time, why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison but he delivered Jesus to their will. I 
How very sad to be, as it were, forced into this situation of, of having to murder someone, had to put someone to death because you're, more, you're worried about the uproar. You're worried about the riot that may follow. He was trapped by the establishment. You read Matthew's Gospel in uh, He who makes himself a king is no friend of Caesar. We're going to rat you out. If you don't give us what we're asking, then we're going to get word to your boss and your toast, essentially, is what was going to happen. So if you, again, I liked, I've taken the time, and this is, this is I, if you've done this, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very difficult thing to take all of the passages that speak of this historical move in uh, his Passion Week, but when you do, you'll find uh, Pilate's wife coming into this scene. Where does that happen? You've got a piece here and a piece there. It's, it's fun. It's like a little puzzle trying to put it all together. So the second time uh, or that he comes and appears before Pilate, again, uh, he's having this interaction with Jesus, and then he goes back out to speak with the chief priests who could not come in because, of course, they wouldn't want to defile themselves and make themselves unholy for the Passover. So he, he's got to cater to their rituals, right? And he's back and forth. Somewhere in that exchange, Pilate's wife enters the situation. This would be Matthew's gospel. As he's sitting on the judgment seat, she comes and says, Look, honey, you don't want to have anything to do with this man. I had a dream. I suffered greatly through the night. Don't, just don't do this. So now Pilate, he hears that he's the son of God. You understand Greek mythology. You understand some of the things that went on in the minds of these people that are outside of faith. They, they understood history. And he understands, like, whoa, this is a very uncomfortable situation for Pilate. He's looking for an out. He's, you can see his pleading with the crowds, with the establishment. That... Uh, John 19, 12 through 14 gives us the insight there uh, with the manipulation by the establishment. Uh, you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. <laughs> I mean, he, they've, they've got him where they want him. So what does Pilate do? He takes out a basin of water and he's right in front of the establishment, right in front of the crowd. He washes his hands. I, I want to be free of this blood guilt. Let it, be, let it be upon you, not me. I want no part of this. This is all on you. This is what he's saying by washing his hands in front of them. And what do the establishment say? And this has been a plague upon the Jewish nation ever since. The Jews are willing to accept this. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Whew. You know what? It was. 
We all know what happened in 70 AD. Rome finally came in and had enough of it. And they sacked the place and raised it, burnt the temple, destroyed the temple, stripped the gold, burnt it to the ground. And the Jews were scattered. And they've been scattered ever since. But what do we know to be the truth? Is this where the story ends for the Jewish people? No, we have... As, the, as Christians, we have a soft spot in our heart for the Jewish nation. We understand that right now they're living in blindness. Blindness in part has happened until what? Till the fullness of the Gentiles are assembled. Romans eleven twenty five. The church is not replace Israel. God still has plans and purposes. The 70th week of Daniel's vision, his prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, has not yet been fulfilled. There's still a seven-year period that needs to happen with the Jewish nation. But that's not going to happen until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. God is still gathering from the world today Jews and Gentiles to believe upon Jesus as Messiah, to form his bride, the church. When that full number is assembled, God will remove the church, is our belief. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be changed. How quick is a twinkling of an eye? Oh, let me go back and get my stuff. No, <laughs> you won't have time. At some point in the near, I believe in the near future, I'm trusting you do too. It can't come any quicker. I just wish it would come quicker. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be changed. Metamorphosis is our English word that we get from that Greek word. We're all going to be transformed. This mortal would have put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. And you and I will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And for, at that point, we will forever be with the Lord. And guess what's on the other side? We actually sang about it this morning. Just go to Revelation 21. So when you get to heaven, one of the things you're going to be looking for is what's in Revelation 21. There's a tree, there's a, a river of life, and there's a tree of life. I don't know about you, I think the song referred to dipping in that river. I don't know about you, but I'm diving in. <laughs> you? I'm going to eat from that tree of life. There's 12 fruits, different, depending on what month it is. I'm going to eat of that fruit. You're going to eat of that fruit. So when you get to heaven, that's one of the things you're going to be looking for. First, you're going to look for Jesus, and you're going to see him face to face. We will see his face always. No more need for faith. He's right there. And it'll be great. That's what we got to look forward to, because he was willing to submit himself to this. He did something that none of us could have ever done. There's nobody in this room, there's no man or woman on the face of the earth that could have paid for their own sin and raised himself from the dead. But Jesus did. He paid the price because he was innocent. His blood covers our sins. This is what it took. This is what was necessary. There was no other way that this could that mankind could be redeemed. So when we take the cup this morning, and this is what we're going to do here, a little different this morning, we're going to take the cup, the elements, 
at your leisure, at your own will, come up. I'm going to open it, uh, open it up at your will as the musicians are playing. Come up and take the cup. Juice is in the top cup. The wafer's in the bottom cup. Take one of those with you. Return to your seat. And as you feel led by yourself, by, with your family or by yourself, however it is for you this morning, you take the cup. You take the bread. And you thank the Lord for what we read this morning that he did on our behalf. And you think about also when you drink that cup of the future that you have. What did he say about the cup? I'm not going to drink of this until I drink it afresh. When? In the kingdom. That's our future. And he, he wants us to remember it has past connotations. It has present connotations in that it's also a cup of healing. That's what the new covenant's all about. By his stripes, we are healed. When you take that cup, you, you can ask the Lord. You can take the Lord at his word that he will bring healing to you. Now, we need healing not just physically. That's important. But we, have, we need spiritual healing. We need Sin scars us. It does damage to us. We don't realize that when we choose to sin that, oh, this is... This isn't going to hurt me a bit. I mean, we might think that, but it's not true. It's very damaging to our being. The human, human beings were not to be subjected to sin. We were never made to experience sin. And so by experiencing it, it damages us. But that's the power of the blood of Christ. That is the power of him taking the stripes that bring forth our healing. So when you drink that cup, you're drinking a cup of healing, if you believe it. Ask the Lord for his healing. That's what is there for us in the present. Remember what he did. Experience the blessing of what God has provided for us in Christ, in the present. But let's look to the future. It's coming like a freight train, and nobody's going to stop it, right? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you.